You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good evening, everyone. It's uh, really, really wonderful to be able to learn with you once again uh, this week. Welcome, everybody. Um, uh, so we're, we're shifting gears. Uh, the first several weeks, uh, six weeks of uh, my being at Temple Bethel, we did uh, six spectacular scriptures, uh, which were a, a series of conversations about um, six texts from the Bible. Um, uh, there were a couple of them that I fudged and actually put, you know, uh, more than one text in a night, but six texts from the Bible uh, that uh, really spoke to me um, and have spoken to me throughout my life. And, and so um, I use those both as to talk about uh, us and to show uh, ways that the Torah uh, talks about life, but also to um, introduce you, as it were, to me and to show you the, the text that, that spoke to my soul. Um, today, I want to uh, start talking about um, us a little bit more, um, and uh, oh, thank you, and uh, specifically to uh, to start talking about us over the next uh, several weeks, um, because uh, over the next several weeks, uh, we, along with Jews around the world, are going to be uh, uh, coming back to synagogue. Some of us just coming back as a, you know, the following week to synagogue, but uh, many people coming back to synagogue after a, a long year of, uh, of absence. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, someone once told me uh, that um, uh, their, their sense of the high holidays was this, that, um, uh, um, that everyone comes on the high holidays um, and is so unbelievably uh, bored and, uh, and, and, and finds it so unbelievably meaningless that they resolve, I'm, I can't possibly deal with that the rest of the year, so I'm not coming back. Um, and, you know, so that's my, that's, you know, that's my one time and, and poshness, that's it. Uh, and then they come back next year to atone for the fact that they didn't come the rest of the year, and the cycle begins again, right? They get there, and uh, this is a total meaningless endeavor. Um, that's, uh, that's about as much as I can handle. Um, and so what I wanted to uh, uh, start talking about tonight and, and next week um, are strategies, thoughts, texts, um, that uh, I thought we could explore together to uh, help make the um, High Holy Day experience um, much more personally meaningful to uh, to each of us. Um, and, uh, and my hope is that uh, for those who are listening in cyberspace or for those who we will um, uh, maybe share what we learned uh, tonight, um, and for those of us, uh, of course, in, in the room, uh, that uh, we'll explore some ideas and some themes that will uh, that will strike a chord somewhere in our hearts and our souls, uh, and will enable us to um, uh, to have a, a more a richer, uh, more spiritually uh, rewarding experience o- over the high holy days. So the first one, and I actually, uh, this is a little bit of an alchet on my part. Um, uh, I wanted to uh, come up with uh, classes before I actually knew what the classes were. And so I titled this class, uh, uh, the, the series I was going to call Preparing Your Heart for the High Holy Days because of the reasons that I just explained. Uh, but the particular class is 
tonight and next week, um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to teach, so I just like came up with names for the purposes of advertising, and then I was like, I'll, go, I'll find a class to match that title. Um, so, uh, so something happened, when I was thinking about this in May, I came up with this idea, what is your calling? And then a few weeks ago, I was re-exploring, I said, okay, now what did I call that class? Because I had to think of a class to match, and I couldn't for the life of me remember why I wanted to title the class for Rosh Hashanah, What Is Your Calling? Until um, it hit me in uh, services at Rosh Chodesh Elul, this was why I called the class, What Is Your Calling? This, uh, for those of you who are listening in cyberspace, I'm holding up a shofar. Um, because this is really um, the, the central symbol of Rosh Hashanah, right? And we'll see that in a second. The, from, from the Torah's point of view, um, and it's even not even quite clear what the Torah means by this, um, but from the Torah's point of view, the only real character that Rosh Hashanah has is a day where you blow the shofar. Um, apples and honey, not in the Torah. Right, Unatana um, Tokef, uh, um, not in the Torah. The sheep's head, not in the Torah. Tashlich, not in the Torah. Right, all these things that we have, that we come to associate with uh, with with Rosh Hashanah, uh, round Chala, not in the Torah. Right, uh, all these things that we come to associate with Rosh Hashanah, um, it turns out uh, are um, uh, are later developments in in the Jewish tradition. Even the notion that Rosh Hashanah is uh, Yom Hadin, the day of uh, judgment, um, which is an idea that uh, um, develops over time, um, uh, but uh, uh, becomes crystallized at least in the Mishnah um, when it says that uh, on the on the first of Tishrei, um, all of the people of the world uh, pass before uh, God like uh, like flocks of sheep. Um, and God passes judgment on, uh, on, on, on each and every person. But that idea is not present in, in the Torah, at least not, uh, except for maybe by inference from, uh, places. The one thing that, uh, that, that is discussed for Rosh Hashanah, um, is the shofar, and even that is kind of an illusion. Okay, so, um, so we'll look at that in a second. But so, I, what I, what I, uh, what I mean by that is that, uh, that there's something about the shofar, um, about the symbol of it, about the ritual of it, about the sound of it, about the hearing of it, that cuts, that gets at the core of what it is that we're trying to do, what this business of Rosh Hashanah is all about. Um, and if we can really kind of get to that, then I think that um, we'll have um, uh, more of a connection, more of a sense of what it is that we're supposed to be doing, what it is we're supposed to be feeling, what's the work, what's the spiritual work of Rosh Hashanah. So that's what I want to explore tonight, is to delve into the issue of shofar, and from it to talk about, okay, what is this um, practice, what is this ritual trying to elicit from us, communicate to us, um, invite us toward. So I want to start with a story by one of my favorite um, uh, Hasidic authors. This is Rabbi Shalom Noach Berezovsky, who's also known as the Nativot Shalom. Um, he's uh, sometimes known as the Slonimer Rebbe um, because his uh, dynasty uh, comes from Slonim. Uh, now the Slonimer Hasidim uh, live in uh, in Israel, I believe in Bnei Brak, in Israel. Um, and so the Slonimer Rebbe, uh, this Slonimer Rebbe, Shalom Noach Berzovsky, um, is a very unique figure because he um, he transcends, he, he bridges the gap between uh, the old world and the new world in a way, and in much the same way that, uh, um, uh, say, an Abraham Joshua Heschel did. Um, 
slightly different way because Abraham Joshua Heschel bridged into this new world, into America, and uh, spoke, hello, spoke to, um, uh, tried to speak to uh, modern academic American audiences. Shalom Noach was really speaking to an internal Hasidic audience, but bridged the gap in the sense that um, he moved from um, the old world shtetls of, uh, of, uh, of Slonim to, uh, to modern uh, Israel, um, and, uh, and so speaks um, with, through idioms and through language that would be understandable to people who, who, uh, who grew up in the modern world. So he's very o- old world Hasidic, but I think, especially if you know Hebrew, very new world understandable. Um, and he, sp- and he writes for the most part, um, whereas most Hasidic masters, uh, um, actually didn't write down their works at all. They, uh, they spoke out drashot and divrei Torah on, uh, on, you know, on Erev Shabbos or Tzudah Shlishit or something like that. And then their Hasidim, their, their disciples, some who had really great memories, would go and try to transcribe after Shabbos verbatim what they spoke about uh, during Shabbat. Um, usually with uh, a high degree of frequency, although there's, uh, there's one uh, Hasidic master, um, I want to say it's uh, the Mea Shiloach, um, who it is said would never, when his disciple would come to him and, um, and show him the transcript of the uh, sermon that he gave, if he remembered having said any of it, he would tell the disciple to go back and rewrite it. Right? I need to make sure you heard that right. If he remembered having said anything that the disciple wrote down, he would make the disciple go back and rewrite it or throw it out because his theory was if he remembered saying it, it wasn't uh, the Holy Spirit speaking. Right? And, uh, and, and so um, he would only allow to be written down that which was uh, directly coming from the Holy Spirit being channeled through him. But anyway, that's how most Hasidic masters wrote uh, down their, their drashot, where um, uh, after Shabbos their disciples would go and, and write them down. Um, and so most, uh, and, and usually, by the way, the Hasidic masters spoke in Yiddish, um, and the disciples would then d- transcribe the Yiddish uh, sermons and then translate them into Hebrew. So many of the classic works of uh, Hasidic uh, thought um, you can find they're, they're written in Hebrew. It's, I don't, it's virtually impossible, actually, to find a lot of these uh, that that uh, that are in Yiddish. Although they might have some Yiddishisms in them, um, because uh, they wanted them to uh, um, to to link to a, an ongoing chain of tradition um, of, uh, of of sacred Hebrew text. Um, so most Hasidic masters, that means you're getting their words um, sort of twice removed from them, right? So they spoke, their disciples wrote it down, and it's being translated into another language. And then, if you don't really, if that's not, if Hebrew is not your primary language, you're getting it really third hand because you're translating it into your own language. So, um, the Salonor Rebbe is great because um, he actually wrote his uh, his book. He's one of the rare um, Hasidic thinkers, and it's sort of a characteristic of uh, the Salonor uh, brand of uh, Hasidut, that uh, they thought very analytically, um, as opposed to a lot of Hasidic uh, thinkers that, that are a little bit more um, uh, uh, right-brained. Um, uh, so Reb Shalom Noach is very left-brained and, 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 and thought very analytically, and so wrote you know, very um, uh, um, logical treatises. So his uh, um, 
sermons were, you know, very sort of clear expositions on, on a piece of text that, that followed very logically uh, from one place to the next. And he wrote also essays um, like that as well. The other brand of Hasidut that is kind of like that is uh, Chabad, I think. Um, Chabad is um, um, a, a, a more analytical, um, uh, though... Uh, they are also a very uh, heart-oriented uh, approach, uh, but the acronym Chabad stands for Chochma Bina Da'at, which is all head stuff, right? Uh, Chochma's wisdom, Bina's understanding, Da'at is knowledge, right? So that shows you the the approach of Chabad is to uh, is is a, a little bit more um, head than heart-oriented. Um, anyway, okay, so this comes from an essay that uh, uh, Rabbi Shalom Noach has about, uh, he has a series of essays on Rosh Hashanah, and this is one he writes about the shofar, okay, from one he writes about the shofar. Here's what he says, there's a parable about a king who sent his son to a distant land in which lived the king's enemies in order to fulfill some special task that he had given him. In order to keep in touch with his son, he would send him letters regularly. But the king's enemies would sabotage and do all kinds of destructive things to prevent the letters from getting to the prince in order to break the connection between the king and his son. Because of this, the king resolved to speak with his son at least once a year directly, face to face, and that they would speak in a certain language that the king's enemies could not understand. In this way, the connection between them would be renewed. It's similar with the connection between the Jewish people and their father in heaven. There are always disruptions and agitations that aim to sever, God forbid, the connection between the Jewish people and their father in heaven. So once per year, there is the shofar's call, which is the direct speech between the Holy One of Blessing and the Jewish people. And that is the matter of the sound of the shofar. It is God's voice calling out on Rosh Hashanah to every Jewish person to return to his source and root. So I share that text for a couple reasons. The first is, um, I think it's just a, a really delicious parable. Um, and um, very um, characteristic of Salonim uh, Rechassidut that uh, um, it doesn't have a lot of... Uh, um, uh, very uh, rich allegorical layers of meaning. It's really, I think, um, uh, it tries to communicate its message uh, uh, very straightforward, uh, in a very straightforward way. Um, and it's uh, it's beautiful to think about that. And I just want us to think about that for a second, right? That um, um, in our lives, um, we, uh, all of us, I think, to varying degrees, um, are disconnected. Right, disconnected from um, from ourselves, from uh, from from our truest selves, from the self that we might want to be. We're disconnected from uh, from from loved ones, from our, uh, our our children, from our parents, from our spouses, from our siblings, from our from our friends. Um, in various ways, um, we we're not always in the same wavelength, not always speaking the same language. Right? Um, uh, there's not always. Um, uh, an intimate and close bond. Sometimes it's uh, um, sometimes it's ruptured. Sometimes there's friction. Um, 
it's true of our relationship between us and, uh, and, and our community, right? I mean, I, we've talked about it a little bit jokingly uh, before, um, how uh, Rosh Hashanah is a time when uh, uh, many Jews who are not otherwise uh, connected to Jewish community all of a sudden sort of gravitate back to um, synagogue, but during the rest of the year um, uh, in, in ways that are felt and in ways that are sometimes not felt, um, uh, people are disconnected from, uh, from, from community and from the, uh, Jewish people more broadly speaking. And I think in very real ways, and I can say this for myself, um, we're disconnected, uh, from, from God. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, often reflect on the fact that, you know, I, I wish I did, but, uh, but if I'm honest, I don't. Um, walk around day in, day out in the sort of, you know, God trance, right? And it's probably maybe a good thing that I don't. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel like, okay, you know, people are expecting the rabbi is a direct line, you know, direct connection. Um, but I really, I'll be honest with you, I don't have it most of the time. Um, if not, uh, if not, the vast majority of the time. Um, and I'm not even necessarily always sure exactly what that feels like or what that looks like, what, what that, what that connection is actually supposed to be. Um, and so I imagine that a lot of us uh, sitting around this table and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, in our community have, uh, have that disconnect between them and God or them and the transcendent, them and the holy, them and the um, uh, uh, transcendent element of, of, all, uh, of all being, the power that's greater than themselves, um, the, the uh, force that makes for salvation however you want to uh, uh, conceptualize the divine. Um, and so, um, I think a lot of us feel that, uh, that, that disconnect, that we're, that we're, uh, not quite, uh, um, in sync with our, with our source, not quite in sync with our, with our highest selves, our highest calling. Um, and so, what the Slonomer Rebbe is proposing is that, uh, during the year, we're sort of all over the place and all over the map and have all sorts of, uh, uh distractions and agitations, things that put up barriers between us and ourselves, us and our families, us and our friends, us and our communities, us and our God. And Rosh Hashanah, the shofar, um, is, uh, is, is an opportunity to call back into that relationship. It's a special language that's developed um, that is supposed to cut through all of that noise and not be withheld by all that noise and reestablish a direct connection and a direct relationship. He uses God and, uh, and a Jewish person. But I think on all of those levels, uh, he might say, uh, the, is how the shofar works. It's supposed to be, um, uh, a secret language that's, uh, not distractible by, uh, those, uh, outside agitations and those outside forces. It's, uh, so I was just listening to this, uh, CD that Norman gave me as a magnificent gift, um, of, um, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, uh, who is, um, uh, 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 was, he passed away, uh, just, uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, another one of these figures that really kind of bridged, uh, old world Hasidut and, uh, new world in a much more radical way than, uh, even Abraham Joshua Heschel did. Um, he had a lot of, uh, um, he had a lot of intimate familiarity with, uh, Hasidic Judaism and also, um, 
so many world religions. He was a student of uh, a very deep and intimate student of uh, all sorts of religions, especially Buddhism uh, and Eastern religions, um, and uh, was very tuned into um, the the nineteen sixties uh, counterculture. Um, and so he was talking about the the title of the talk. Well, the title of the talk that he wanted. Um, this is from 1971, okay? So, and this is a voice from beyond that I'm sharing with you tonight, okay? So, uh, so the talk from 1971, he wanted it to be called, it ended up being called, advertised as the Chassid, the Square, and the Jew. What he wanted it to be called was the Hippie, the Square, and the Jew. And he wanted to talk about the generational gap, the generational divide between my, presumably, I wasn't there, but presumably the people in the audience listening to him speak who were the squares, right? And uh, who were wondering why their kids were, uh, you know, uh, tuning in, turning on, and dropping out, um, not really understanding the counterculture that had been uh, um, uh, uh, really, you know, hit its peak uh, by then, but uh, but was really still a, a strong, a significant part of the culture. So he's trying to talk about these these worlds, and he was pointing out the um, the benefits of the uh, or the or trying to be sensitive to um, the real motivations that led to the um, to the counterculture and the hippie movement. Um, some of its some of its criticisms too, and he was trying to be honest about the criticism. And then he talks about the squares, right? And so you know, uh, he, he said we want to be uh, um, uh, kind to the squares because, and he talked about um, the admirable qualities of, of quote unquote squares. You plan for the future, etc. Um, you know, the the value of work, all that sort of stuff. And so the Jew part that he brought in. Um, and I haven't finished listening to the talk yet, but was, this is where I've gotten. The Jew part that he bought him was brilliant, right? So the, the hippie says, um, there's no point in waiting for a life uh, down the line if you're not going to be able to live your life right now, right? And the square says, someone's got to pay the taxes, right? Someone's got to do the work. Someone's got to plan for the future and make sure that the future is secure, and the and and another voice comes and says, "There's, I think, probably more. Can you pass those uh, pages around, please? Thank you." Um, uh, so uh, the, the the other voice comes and says, "The Jewish voice comes and says, for six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you shall rest.' Right? So the Jewish voice bridges both of those worlds." Because it says there's a value to work, there's a value to storing, there's a value to, uh, to, uh, to, to planning for the future, right? There's a value to productivity, but there's also a value to, to, to uh, tuning in, turning on, and dropping out. And the reality is that you need uh, both a bit of hippie and a, both a bit of square, right, in you. So, in a way, I think that that's what uh, Rav Shalom Noach is getting at here. And what he's saying about Rosh Hashanah is, um, on a larger scale than just Shabbos, right, during the whole year, we are squares, most of us, right, in one way or another. We're working, we're busy, we are tuned in, we are on this wavelength, right, and the connections that we often miss are anything that exists, you know, too far outside of that frequency, too far outside of that wavelength, right? So, and I see for myself, right? So when I'm in like work mode, um, even at home, when my daughter's around, I will interact with her, but I won't like really be with her. 
right? And has anybody like experienced this with with uh, with your families that you're that that um, that I'm I'm only on her frequency when I like totally ship frequencies, and otherwise, if she's on my frequency, if she's like you know uh, interacting with me in a way that also enables me to like do my emails on my phone, great. Otherwise, I'm not really paying much attention to her, and maybe even worse, right? Pushing her aside. Um, and I think that that's the case for a lot of us during the, during the year is we're, we're on one frequency or we're on whatever frequency we want to be. And anything that kind of bleeds into that frequency, great, we'll interact with them, we'll have a connection with them, but it's going to be on our terms, on our frequency, on our track, right? And, uh, and what, uh, and, and what, uh, the Salonimer is saying through this parable that Rosh Hashanah offers is a chance to kind of Pause that frequency, pause that um, pattern of living, and reconnect to a new frequency, to a direct frequency with God, with our families, with our friends, with our relationships, with our communities. Okay. So I want to pause there for a second. Any comments or questions on that, on that parable? So the question that I had when I read this parable, as beautiful as I thought it was, is how does the shofar do that? And, and how does that work, right? Um, and uh, I'm often, I hear, you know, you how you like hear mentors and teachers and parents in your head, or, you know, that's like the superego and it's like the, the, the voice of your conscience. So I always hear my, uh, my, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Erwin Kula, um, saying, like, how does the technology work? Right? It says that all Jewish practices are uh, spiritual technologies. Right? They are meant to address real human needs. They're tools that were created to address real human needs. And the challenge is twofold. First, for those who believe in those tools, who, who think the tools are beautiful and wonderful, you need to show, that's someone like me, you need to show how the tool works and why the tool is useful for you in your lives. Why you should bother picking up the tool and using it, right? So that's one. The second is, um, uh, to, so what, what that, by the way, what that requires is knowing what's the job that the tool is supposed to be getting, is supposed to be doing, right? What's the job it's trying to get done, right? So that's the question for Shofar. What's the job it's trying to get done, right? And how does it work, right? How does it work, right? How does it do that job? And then the third question is, does it work? Does it do that job? Right? So I can't necessarily answer all of those questions, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, but those are really the, the guiding questions tonight. So, so um, what's the job the shofar is trying to get done? How does it work? And does it work? Okay? So we have a theory from Reb Sholem Noach that the job the shofar is trying to get done is to reestablish a direct connection between us and God. Right? That's one theory, at least, of the job the shofar is trying to get done. We're going to see some other theories of the job the shofar is trying to get done, um, and we're going to talk maybe a little bit about how it works and uh, then um, about whether it works. Okay? So let's look first at... Um, you know what I'd actually love... Just uh, to, so that we um, are on 
more of the same uh, frequency and, and wavelength. I'd love just for a few minutes, and we have a few minutes, um, for people to turn to the person next to them and just look at the, the rest of the text on the page together um, for a little bit. Just read them out loud to each other and see if they spark any ideas or thoughts or questions for you. And remembering that our guiding questions are, um, what's the job the shofar is trying to get done? How does it work? And does it work? Okay, so each of these texts are going to be talking about the shofar in some way. So those are the guiding questions, right? What's the job it's trying to get done in that text? How does it work and does it work? Okay, so just take a few minutes to Chavruta to uh, study together in partners, um, and then we'll regroup in a couple of minutes um, uh, and maybe with, uh, with some additional thoughts that you might have. <laughs>
Just under a minute left. Don't feel pressure to get to all the texts. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll look at each of these texts uh, during uh, during our discussion. But um, all right, let's let's go through them one by one. Um, all right, the first is, except for this one, they're in um, more or less chronological order or biblical order. But the first one from Numbers I put because that's really the source text for uh, for Rosh Hashanah, right? So I thought I'd, I'd put that one first um, because it's also the most basic uh, of them. Um, there's a similar one uh, in Leviticus, uh, and we can uh, talk about uh, what the difference is there. But anyway, um, right, uh, on, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, okay, so just uh, so we're all on the same page here, um, I know that there's probably, for some people, a little cognitive, was there some cognitive dissonance in that, right? Why is it the seventh month? Sorry, yeah, there's a lot of people said it. I'm sure they're all the right answer. Carolyn, what'd you say? Everything in the Bible was seven. Ah, okay, fine, fair enough, good, okay. So that may be why the seventh month was the one chosen for this holiday. Uh, but uh, but we usually talk about Rosh Hashanah. I mean, after all, it's called Rosh Hashanah. Note here that it's not called Rosh Hashanah. Um, we, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year, the beginning of the year. So you would think that it would happen on what month? The first month, right? So, um, so remember that uh, the Bible's counting the months starts with what month? Nisan, right? Why does it start with Nisan? Because of Passover. Well, spring is maybe another answer, right? Because it wants to start the agricultural cycle um, in the in the spring. But uh, but from the Bible's point of view, at least, it starts in Nisan because that's the month where the Exodus took place, um, and so that's really the the month that begins Jewish history. And from the Bible's perspective, we only care about Jewish history, so therefore we're going to mark our time beginning in um, the month of Nisan. So Nisan is the first month, and in fact, in uh, the Mishnah Tractate Rosh Hashanah, um, it talks about there being four different Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, uh, one of which is the first of Nisan, right? Because it's the beginning of the of the new year. Um, that's the new year for the calendar. Another Rosh Hashanah is uh, is this one is the first day of the seventh month. Um, the other two, anybody remember what the other two are? Right, so two, right, Tu Bishvat is the new year for the Ilanot, for the new year for the trees. Uh, and, um, and anybody remember the fourth one? This is a tough one. 
Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's the first of Elul. The first of Elul is the new year for the animals. Okay, so this is really this is really interesting. Okay, so um, if you follow the Mishnah's conception of what Rosh Hashanah is, it's um, it's not just the new year for the Jewish people, although we call it now the Jewish New Year. Um, it's the, the Mishnah talks about it being Yom Hadin. It's when all of the people of the world pass before God in judgment. Right, so, um, and if you follow the chronology of the Torah, the way the rabbis talk about the chronology, um, we usually think about Rosh Hashanah uh, co- corresponding to what major astrological event or as- uh, cosmological event. The creation of the world, right? Um, the creation we, we say in, we say in Rosh Hashanah, Hayom Harat Olam, right? Today the world stands as at birth. Um, but the but the chronology actually is not quite like that. The chronology of Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei, is um, according to the rabbis the day when the sixth day of creation. What happened on the sixth day of creation? The creation of humanity, right? Creation of man. Um, so that's why Rosh Hashanah is the new year for all humanity. And so then you see that in that continuum of new years, you have the creation of humanity, the creation of the Jewish people, the creation of animals, and the creation of trees, right? The creation of plants. Um, uh, so, uh, so you really have um, all elements of, uh, of creation represented with a different New Year. It's an amazing thing. So anyway, okay, so the seventh month is the month of Tishrei, which we now consider the first month, primarily because of Rosh Hashanah, and we started getting in sync with that because of uh, fiscal years and, and uh, um, membership drives, and it's when everybody went to shul. So now it's the first month on the calendar, but in the Bible it's the seventh month. On the first day of the month, you shall observe a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall observe it as a day when the horn is sounded. Okay, so if you look at the Hebrew, by the way, it doesn't, the word horn doesn't appear. It just says, uh, Yom Truah Yielachem. It should be a day of blasting to you. All right. Um, so I'm not actually, I want to just jump from that because I'm not exactly sure um, what that, well, maybe you have a thought. What, what, what do you think that text teaches us about what is the job that the shofar is trying to get done? Why wake you up? Right. Remember, we need to we need to be uh, in this text. Okay, so th- this text doesn't say anything about being a new year. Doesn't say anything about repentance. It doesn't say anything about any of that. Right. So knowing that, all we know is that there's a holiday on the first day of the seventh month, and there's, we're supposed to blow the shofar in it. You would still say that same answer to wake you up. Okay. Okay. For what? Yeah. Well, I see Great. Now remember this text was written before the destruction of the temple, it was actually built before the construction of the temple. But yes. Right. No, but, but you're absolutely right in, in another sense, which is that even then, before the temple, when the temple was built, it was still the same. People lived in far-flung areas. And in fact, right, this is, uh, this is uh, only one of several texts w- uh, where it talks about the shofar being blown in this way. Um, 
uh, we read one of them on um, on Rosh Hashanah throughout the service, um, and a kiddush tikku b'chodesh shofar, um, sound the shofar each month. Right, and in the Psalms we read that that's actually one of the ways that they would announce the new month each month was to blow the shofar, um, because each month. Um, there, there were a few reasons for that. You know, one was uh, that uh, people lived far away. Um, they didn't have set calendars, right? They needed their count. They were on different frequencies from each other, right? They'll imagine if you, you know, you, uh, um, people, there were no time zones, or people didn't have clocks yet, right? Um, there was no calendar. Um, there was no internet and no phones and no communication, right? Um, and so how do you know when the next holiday is, right? How do you know when everybody's getting together? How do you know um, when um, when it's time to bring a sacrifice? How do you know when it's time to make pilgrimage? And one of the ways that they would do this is by sounding the shofar, right? It was um, it was uh, an uh, an alarm, quite literally, right? It was uh, it was. Uh, it, what's that? Manual sinking. A manual sinking system, right? It was, uh, it was a push notification, right? Um, that's the modern version of that, yeah. So it's interesting. So the um, other text uh, where Rosh Hashanah, though again there it's not called Rosh Hashanah either, it's basically the same uh, text as this, except for it says, Yom Zichron Trua Yelachem. It should be a day of uh, remembrance of the shofar uh, blast to you. And the rabbis interpreted that to mean that uh, it's zichron trua because on Shabbat you can't blow the shofar. So you remember the fact that there's a shofar blown um, when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat. The reason um, really has nothing to do uh, with uh, the, the shofar itself. Um, it has to do with um, uh, a, a, a fence around the law. Um, so the fear was that if you uh, um, had shofar being blown on Rosh Hashanah when it fell on Shabbat, or on um, Rosh Chodesh when it fell on Shabbat, uh, as the case was in the ancient world, um, then people would be carried to, tempted to carry their shofar to synagogue. And you're not allowed to carry from a private domain to a public domain and vice versa on the Sabbath. So as a way to prevent people from doing that, uh, they banned blowing shofar on Shabbat. Um, so that's that's the reason for that. Although the, in the Torah specifically, it never says thou shalt not blow a shofar on Shabbat. Right? It's a rabbinic inference. Um, good. Okay. So uh, what we what we uh, might see from this text is that the shofar, at least here, it uh, it seems like is being used. Um, as some kind of a, some kind of alarm, some kind of uh, or maybe a, a a homing device, right? Uh, that uh, that um, it's it's telling you uh, what time it is. It's telling you what uh, what period of the year it is. Um, it's so it has a very practical function. It's telling you it's time to make pilgrimage. It's time to um, to observe a holiday, right? And what that does is it, may, it gives you a personal alert, but also puts everybody in sync with each other. During the service, we're pounding our chest and, and uh, admitting to all our sins. And, and the shofar to me, after that, is uh, a sort of purification. Mm. Start off the next year, you've already cleared yourself. Beautiful. Um, I all, there's a there's another text that I didn't bring, 
that talks about why we have the specific kinds of sounds of the shofar that we do. Um, and uh, one text from the Talmud says that they correspond um, to the cries of, uh, of in a biblical uh, story of a, a non-Jewish general who is uh, uh, killed in battle. Um, and uh, the Talmud imagines his mother crying over his death um, in these like kind of wailing sobs. So the shofar, from that point of view, is a, is is a is a cry over our um, over our failures, over our uh, misdoings, over our, the losses that we've had, over the guilt that we have. Um, right. So there's sort of like pure. The way I think of it, in addition to what you're saying, is sort of like a a purifying cry. Um, that's beautiful. Okay. So. That's the first text. Now let's look at the second text, which is very different, and uh, Norman had a great question on, about this. Um, so this text, of course, is uh, um, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Um, on the third day, uh, that's the third day that they were camped at Mount Sinai, so that would be like um, the third of Sivan, I guess, or something like that, the second of Sivan. The sixth of Sivan is... Uh, Shavuot, which commemorates giving the Ten Commandments, this is something like that. Just, just so we know what, where we are calendrically. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn. Um, uh, and, uh, and by the way, horn here um, is shofar. Okay? Um, now, horn above in, uh, in numbers, remember, it didn't say the word shofar. But, uh, but, but here we have uh, the word shofar um, uh, very uh, clearly. Um, right, then it's kol shofar. It's the voice of the shofar. The sound of the shofar uh, um, is a kind of a loose translation, a very loud blast of the horn in the, in the Hebrew. It's the kol shofar chazak me'od. The, the sound of the shofar was very strong. Um, Norman's question was, who's blowing the shofar in this text? I don't know. And all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for the Lord had come down in the fire. The smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Mo, the, the, the kol shofar, holech uh, v'chazek uh, me'od. So the sound of the shofar not only was very strong, but went forth and got stronger and stronger. Um, as Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So what is the shofar doing in this text? What's the, what's the job it's getting done? Hmm? Leading? So can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, that he's leading Moses to approach it. It's not so much a command. So the shofar, you're reading it as the shofar was inviting Moses uh, to approach God on top of the mountain. Okay. Other thoughts? Announcement. Interesting. Can you say more? Yeah, that there is something about to happen that is going to be, you know, Earth-shaping um, mm. and, and, and unique, and so it sort of like uh, the uh, when the king arrives, you have the blasts of the trumpets that announce the arrival of the king. Mm -hmm. So it's basically an announcement of this is the arrival of the moment when God, you know, will give 
contact people. So turn over your page for a second to, um, oh no, I took the text out. Um, <laughs> uh, I need to want to keep it on one page from back. So this is uh, the text from Zachariah that I think hits on, on exactly that, uses the same kind of uh, language of shofar to announce the coming of God, right? And I think that uh, in, in a lot of ways, that's what it's, uh, that's the function of it here, because you see what happens after the shofar is blasted louder and louder, the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So the first thing that happens, the shofar blasts, and it pre precedes God's coming down, right? So I think that that, um, it, it's not coincidental that the Torah describes the experience of Sinai, of God directly and personally um, uh, coming down um, and having a, an encounter with the people um, that is um, direct and unmediated, that the same language of blasting the shofar um, is used to describe this holiday, right? Because um, whenever then, you know, after you look at this text, whenever the shofar is sounded, it bears that connotation, right? That, that this signifies the approaching of God, right? The intimacy of God. Now, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance, I think, because the language of the, um, uh, high holiday services, and especially Rosh Hashanah, is very, um, Regal is very like high church, right? God is God is uh, God is King, and uh, you know, right? Uh, it's upon us to uh, give praise to the Master of all. Right? We have this uh, very high fluting language about God, but in reality, the message is uh, much softer, right? I mean, maybe maybe powerful, maybe fear-inducing, uh, but uh, but very intimate. Right, the shofar is announcing the presence of God. Right, maybe a reminder of or a call toward the reality of the presence of God that is always here, but one that we, you know, in our uh, workaday lives don't really focus in on or pay attention to. So maybe, um, um, like you said, right, it's an, a moment for um, uh, waking up. Right? Taking the scales off of your eyes, seeing the reality of the world as it is, that God's presence is actually here. There's another piece of it, which Norma alluded to, which is after God comes, Moses goes up to God. Right, So there's a meeting. Right, It's not just about God coming to us. We also have to take a step. We also have to take a step forward. Um, and there's a third thing, I think, that uh, is important to note with, with the illusion that we have here um, to Sinai, and, and therefore what the shofar evokes when it's being uh, sounded, if we're connected to it, um, is responsibility and commitment and covenant, right? And um, uh, again, uh, uh, um, this, this idea that, um, that for most of us, and I include myself in this, um, our connection to um, to our sacred responsibilities as Jews um, uh, is um, very often more like um, if it's convenient for me, I will, and if it's not, I won't. Right. So when it fits in with my schedule, when I'm not going on vacation, I'll go to shul. 
Right? Or when I'm not too busy at work, I'll go to synagogue on Saturday. Um, uh, when it, you know, when when I have time, I'll study. Right? Um, uh, you know, uh, um, I'm you know, I'm not going to build a, a sukkah this year. Right? There's no, um, uh, you know, it's it's too much of a schlep, and there's football on TV. Right? But when there's nothing good on TV, then maybe I'll build a sukkah. Right? So so all of us have, the, and this is not a, a, a question of, of of judgment because all of us are there. Right? All of us are very attuned to the lives that we have for very good reasons because that's how we stay alive. And, uh, um, and, and for most of us, um, our, our connection to the transcendent and our connection to our, our, our uh, sacred responsibilities is really only when it's uh, um, uh, really, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, um, only when it's convenient for us or only when we um, uh, 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 are internally driven to want to do it. Right, most of us, my guess is, um, uh, don't, including myself, uh, don't uh, often approach um, uh, Judaism as a, a, a collection of, uh, of sacred obligations that um, uh, that we are called to do, whether we feel like it or not, whether it works with our schedules or not, whether it matches our budget or not. Um, and what this is saying is that um, is that Rosh Hashanah and what the shofar calls us to is uh, is a reminder that um, we are um, uh, not put on this earth merely to uh, live and thrive in um, in in the paths of life that we uh, choose for ourselves, uh, but we are also called to serve, and we also have obligations. We also have responsibilities. Okay, let's go on to uh, Leviticus. I love this text. As a recent Philadelphia transplant, I especially love this text. So, uh, you shall count off seven weeks of years. I'll show you why if you don't get that in a second. Uh, you shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. Then you shall sound the horn loud. The shofar, loud. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, the day of atonement. Okay, we'll get to, uh, don't focus too much on the fact that this is Yom Kippur, having on Yom Kippur. We'll talk about Yom Kippur next week. You shall have the horn sounded throughout your land. Again, reminding us that the, that the ritual of announcing this 50th year is the shofar. And you shall hallow the 50th year. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his holding, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may only eat the growth direct from the field. Okay, so... uh, who can say why uh, I have an affinity for this text uh, now having just moved from Philadelphia? The Liberty Bell, good. Uh, verse, uh, 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 verse 10 here is uh, the verse that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell. You, know, you shall proclaim, uh, here it uses the word release, but on the Liberty Bell you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants thereof, right? Um, so, um, but it's slightly different translation here. Okay, so what's the, what's the job the shofar is trying to get done here? What's the job of the shofar here? Okay. 
Good. What are the what are the specific obligations and responsibilities of in right here that it's reminding us about? Other thoughts? It's a return. Say more. Yeah. Sorry, can you speak up a little bit? I just said we're reflected on the word return. It's calling you to return to your family, return to your synagogue, return to your roots, return to things that are primary. Isn't the word release the land is also the release of slaves. It absolutely is. And the release of the land that you brought from the next five opportunity. That's right, right? So there's there's release on multiple levels here. Releasing slaves, releasing the land from your from your grip, releasing the land from your, your planting and harvesting on it. What? Releasing debts, right? Um, which goes along with what Eva was saying about uh, um, uh, 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 caring for the poor. Um, and releasing yourself, right? I mean, this, the, the Jubilee is a really radical concept. Imagine every 50 years, there's no such thing as private property in a system where there's Jubilee, right? The property all belongs to God, right? You're a, a, at best a, a long-term tenant on, uh, on a given piece of property. You can never hold um, a, uh, a, um, a, a, a deed that, uh, that gives you the land, that entitles you to the land forever, because at best you have it for 50 years and then you have to go back to where you came from, right? Um, so what I, what I love about this and why it's so amazing that shofar is part of this ritual is because, um, because it, it reminds us that, um, that, that, that the, the, the lives we build for ourselves, the property that we amass, the things that we usually think is significant and we spend all of our time and energy working toward in our lives, ultimately those things are actually free, fleeting. They're not really ours anyway. We certainly can't take them with us after we die, right? And, um, but, we, but yet we like cling to these things with ferocity, right? And the shofar is... Um, um, I, I love what you said about uh, about it being um, a release for you, right? And that's what you have here. The the shofar is supposed to to sever you in a way, right? To to, to say, whoa, right? I'm I'm focusing on all the wrong things, right? I am I'm committed to all of the wrong things. I'm um, I, I'm uh, spending all of my energy um, building and taking. When in reality, I should be giving. When in reality, I should be releasing. It's a reminder of what really matters. Right? Which is the amazing that. So think about this for a second. Let's be charitable to people. Um, once a year, at least, um, people who don't give this much thought, this sort of thing much thought, all of a sudden come back to synagogues and are reconnected with their parents. And parents are reconnected with their children who they may not see and may not spend that much time with. And you're reconnected with loved ones that you've lost because they are in that room and in those seats. Right? At least once a year, we have this incredible opportunity to reconnect. Right, to, to, to divorce ourselves from the things in our lives that, 
really ultimately don't really matter all that much, and be and replant ourselves where we're supposed to be. Right? That's an amazing thing. Okay, um, just really quickly to look through a couple of other a uh, couple of these other texts. Okay, so Numbers chapter ten. Uh, and here, this is a little bit of a fudge, because the term shofar is not used here, but the term uh, uh, truah, right, of the, which is the same word we use to, set, to blast the shofar, that's what's used here. And so I thought that there was a, uh, um, a significant connection uh, being, being offered here. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Have two silver trumpets made, make them of hammered work. They shall serve you to summon the community and to set the divisions in motion. When both are blown in long blasts, that's a tekiah, when both are blown in long blasts, the whole community shall assemble before you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And if only one is blown, the chieftains, heads of Israel's contingents shall assemble before you. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second, okay? So in a certain kind of blast, now we have it a little bit more uh, specific. A certain kind of blast is supposed to do what? The long blast, the tekiah does what? Brings people together, right? Sums up a, a lot of what we're saying, right? The, the 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 function of the shofar is to bring people together, to 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 wake you up, to have an alarm, and it's an invitation, right? Bring you. It's what Moses does. The shofar is blast. Moses goes up the mountain, right? The shofar is blown. God comes to us, right? The shofar is blown. We go to shul, right? It brings people together, and it, there's also it adds um, if if only one is blasted, only the leaders come. Right, so that's a piece of it too. We blow the shofar a lot of times during the the course of the high holidays, and um, and maybe different ones of those blasts are supposed to speak to um, uh, each of us differently. Right, so there are things that we, as members of a community, are called toward that are different than than uh, than what uh, those who are leaders of a community are called toward, and um, and and the shofar is meant, I think, in some ways to, to, to call to each person on their level, which is why it's such a, um, a blank canvas in a way, right? The sound of the shofar, if you think about the tonality of it, um, um, everybody can hear it in their own way. Um, but when you sound short blasts, um, that's trua, right? Trua um, is the, like, kind of blast, okay? When you sound short blast, the divisions encamped on the south wall shall move forward. Thus short blasts shall be blown for setting them in motion, while to convoke the whole congregation you blow long blasts, not short ones. Okay, so there's a different kind of blast. The short blasts do what? Move, right? The long blasts gather in, the short blasts move. Right? Um, the trumpet shall be blown by Aaron's sons. The priests, they shall be for you an institution for all time throughout all ages. When you are at war in your land against an aggressor who attacks you, you shall sound short blasts on the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be delivered from your enemies. And on your joyous occasions, your fixed festivals and new moon days, you shall sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your sacrifices of well-being. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I, the Lord, am your God. Okay, there's a lot there. So I just want to point out a couple of things. One, we have... Again, the gathering in, but we also have the moving out, and a specific kind of moving out to fight a battle. And it reminds me as I'm reading this of that uh, phrase, and I used this in a sermon a couple weeks ago, right? Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a difficult battle, right? We, all of us, each and every day, fight battles in our lives, right? We fight battles to make ends meet, we 
fight battles with our children. If you have a toddler, you fight endless battles. Uh, you fight battles with your spouse. You fight battles internally about, um, you know, what, what decisions should I make? What job should I take? What partner should I pick? Um, this marriage isn't working. What should I do? Um, we're all fighting significant battles in our lives, right? And the shofar blast, at least according to this text, does two things. It moves you to battle. Because we can't run away from the problems in our lives. Right? That's the illusion of the high holidays, is that you go to shul, it's, you're in sanctuary, you're in refuge. Maybe for a day you are, but what I think a lot of synagogues don't get right and why a lot of people never come back to synagogue after the high holidays is that is that they're not pointing out this real thing, right? That uh, that that what what this is supposed to do is to prepare you for the battle you're going to fight each and every day of your life once you leave the synagogue. And if we're not doing that in synagogue, then there's no point in being there, right? The shofar is calling you to battle, and it's saying that um, that there are that first of all that the battle you're fighting or the battle you should be fighting, is God's battle, right? So that's an important distinction, right? In the battles that we face in our lives, the question to ask ourselves is, is this God's battle, right? Am I fighting the battle that God wants me to fight here? Right? And the answer will be different for everybody, and there's no silver bullet to tell you exactly what that means, whether you're fighting God's battle. But it's a question, I think, that the shofar, for me and from this text, is inviting us to ask ourselves. Right? Am I fighting God's battle? And then the second is, um, it brings God to our side. Right? That doesn't mean that God, it says here, God will deliver you from uh, your enemies, which is very nice. But I think of it a little bit more like God will be on your side as you try to deliver yourself from enemies. Right? That we all need a little bit of extra encouragement and support. Um, we all need to know that, um, that, that, the, um, that the majesty of space and time um, wants the best in our lives, right? And with that hopefulness, with that sense that uh, that um, God is with us, I think we, um, I feel more strongly encouraged to fight the battles in front of me. When things are really hard for me, those two things, right? Asking myself, is this battle God's battle? And do I have God's support in this? which are really only questions we can answer internally. Um, those are powerful questions uh, uh, for me and encouraging uh, um, as, uh, as, as, as I move forward. Right? And then there's also the blast for joy. Right? That's also something that uh, a lot of synagogues don't do very well, especially not on the high holidays, which is also another reason why a lot of people don't come back. Right? Because these are supposed to be blasts signifying joyous occasions, right? They're they, they, they have different functions, right? There, there's the function saying, go fight your battles. And there's also a function saying, life is too short to be fighting battles all the time. Celebrate, right? Um, that's, the, that's the flip side of, um, of, of commitment and obligation. You have all those things, um, uh, but, but in reality, you have one shot at this life, right? So you better do it joyously. As joyously as you can. Yeah. Is there a significance between the fact that this is two silver trumpets and, and, and the other word shofar? 
Um, the only significance is that it's not technically talking about shofar. It's actually talking about silver trumpets. Um, and, uh, and, and they had a different sound, obviously. A silver trumpet will have a different sound. Um, uh, so why, for these purposes, they didn't use a shofar, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, but uh, um, uh, um, other, than the, other than the fact that, uh, that they wanted a particular kind of sound for these kind of calls. Yes, true, true, right? So I'm taking a little bit of a leap here. Um, but uh, the, the reason I take that leap is because the, the language for the kind of blasts you do on those horns is the same language that we use for the kind of blasts that we have on the shofar. Um, but I hear you. It's a little bit of a leap. Um, all right. And uh, um, uh, just, uh, just very quickly, I mean, Isaiah, um, in a lot of ways, uh, re recapitulates something that we've been saying. But on that day, a great shofar will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and scattered in the land of Egypt will bow to God on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Right. So this is after the destruction of the temple. We're all far flung everywhere in the diaspora. The shofar calls us home. The shofar heralds redemption, which comes when we gather together and are at home. And then Maimonides, finally. I'll, I'll close with Maimonides, um, which is a different kind of... Uh, he, he takes it in a different place entirely. Even though the sounding of the shofar in Rosh Hashanah is a biblical decree... Uh, it contains an illusion. So Maimonides uh, is very much of the opinion that, uh, that a law from the Torah doesn't need to have a reason um, because it's a law from the Torah, and so you do it whether or not it has a reason. So what he's saying here is that even though it's a law from the Torah, there's also a reason why we do it. You don't just, you do it because it's a law from the Torah, but there's more to it than that. So here's what he says. As if to say, wake up sleepers from your sleep, and slumberers arise from your slumber. Search your deeds and turn in repentance and remember your creator. Those who forget the truth through the vanities of the time and air their whole year with vanity and emptiness, which neither benefit nor save, peer into your souls and improve your ways and your deeds and let every one of you abandon his evil path and his thoughts that are not good or thought that is not good. Um, so before we finish his text, just what's different about this is um, that uh, he is taking this um, in, uh, in the direction of teshuvah, of, uh, of return and, and repentance, right? Um, so there are connections to what we've been talking about, but this is a very um, a personal wake-up call about the ways we've gone astray. That's how Maimonides understands the shofar. Right? The shofar is a spiritual alarm clock, right? to say, wait a minute, right? Break script. Stop that pattern of behavior. Look inside and say, what is leading me to, 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 um, um, to, to be in these negative patterns of behavior, these negative habits, um, these harmful pat uh, patterns of behavior to myself, to others, um, throughout the course of my life? Um, uh, you are never too far gone. You're never too late in life. You're never too deep into sin to stop. And, uh, and, and reorient and change. And the shofar, but it's hard, right? So the shofar is a piercing blast. You need something loud and agitating to wake you up. It's like when, uh, um, uh, Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber, you know, says in the, in the 
dog van, you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, right? You can't help, it's the most annoying sound in the world, but like your ears perk up and you listen, right? That's what the shofar does. It's the most annoying sound in the world. And you say, whoa, whoa, right? Um, now I have to stop. Now I have to pause, right? I listen to it and then I uh, look inside. And then he ends with this, which is not directly connected, but just amazing. And I want to, I want to end with this. So therefore every person, because I think this is a profound thought to think about for the high holidays. Um, and Maimonides is a profound guy. Therefore, every person must see himself or herself um, the whole entire year. So Rosh Hashanah is not about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is about the whole entire year. So we should see ourselves the whole entire year as if we are half innocent and half guilty. We are exactly even on the scales, right? Which is amazing because often we have the propensity to think of ourselves as uh, 99% good and maybe like 1% bad. And we just have like to do these little tweaks. Or we think of ourselves, uh, if you're very self-critical, right? 99% bad and like 1% good. Sometimes we get it right. He's saying, no, no, no. Everyone, you're per- imagine yourself as being perfectly equal. And if you're perfectly equal, that means uh, that every... Uh, uh, and also the whole world is half innocent and half guilty, right? So the world's not 99% good and 1% bad, whatever, right? Therefore, that means when he commits one transgression, he tips himself and the whole entire world to the scale of guilt. And you see the ellipses there because I want to keep it on two pages, but it goes the other way too, right? Um, when a person commits one, performs one mitzvah, they tilt themselves and the whole entire world to, uh, to the scale of merit, Right? So think about that for a second. But the shofar is an alarm, a wake-up call um, to the dignity of each and every deed, no matter how small. The impact and the power of each and every deed, no matter how small. And it's not just for the day of Rosh Hashanah, it's for the rest of the year. So it's about looking at yourself and looking at the world as if you're on a scale and saying, okay, for every action, for every deed, I had the possibility to tilt the world into chaos or to tilt the world toward perfection. Which am I going to choose? And if we're asking ourselves if I'm fighting God's battle, right, is God on my side in this battle? To be able to conceptualize it in that way, with this step, am I going to tilt myself in the world toward chaos? Or am I going to tilt myself in the world toward cosmos? Am I tilting myself toward goodness? Am I tilting myself toward badness? That's what the shofar is awakening us to, awakening us to. So we see by the end of it that we come back to what uh, um, Rib Shalom Noach Berezovsky was saying in, uh, in his story, right? It is a, a language that is calling out from God, calling out for uh, um, the transfer of frequency to, to put ourselves back on the right frequency, the same frequency as uh, God, to be able to forge and maintain that connection with God, with ourselves, with our friends, with our family, with our communities, to bring us back together and to bring us back to ourselves, to a conscious uh, manner of living in which we uh, um, uh, approach the world as if every single deed that we do matters and None of us is uh, too far down any given path to stop in our tracks and say we can do it differently this year. Shalom. Shana Tova.